Well, happy Independence Day. Y'all know that's today, right? Nobody knows their history? It's July 2nd they voted. It's the day it was official. So that would be today. They got together and signed it. Well, most of them signed it on the 4th. Uh, for those who want to know your, your history a little bit better. Uh, of course, we just got back from the place that we got our independence from a few days ago. Um, we, uh, as most of you know, took a trip to Europe. We were in um, Sweden and Denmark and Norway and ended up for about a day and a half uh, in London uh, in, in the United Kingdom. So I, I don't know if this is necessarily a topical sermon for Independence Day, but um, I do want to read part of the Declaration, and uh, I think it will have some impact on the sermon for today. So it reads as follows, the unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinion of mankind requires that they should declare the cause which impels them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long lasted, long established, I'm sorry, should not be changed for light and transient causes, and that accordingly all expedience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursue inevitably the same objective, invents to design them to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is the history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And the founders go on to make very bold claims about how they were being abused and how they felt they were not being treated fairly. But I want to go back to something that says we hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, these are truths that don't need 
explanation. These are truths that don't need to be sourced or defined. They are simply stating facts about the world that everyone accepts are true. It's a very bold statement to make. And in that, they said that all men are created equal and that we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. It means rights that you cannot take away from us. And that among those, not exclusive, but among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unbelievably bold words, unbelievably important words. And we see from that the birth of the nation that we benefit from today. And so you might ask yourself, well, where did they get this knowledge from? Where did they get these principles from? I've given a lecture before here, it's been many years, about the faith of many of our founding fathers. And most of them would, in fact, um, have a Christian faith, if you will. Some of them, I think, were truly and actually saved and knew the Lord. Many others were a part of a church and had a religious background. A few, maybe not as much as others. But it's important to understand what they're trying to say in these things. And it really um, was something that I, I thought about a lot over the last couple of weeks as we traveled. We found ourselves um, eventually in Norway in a uh, fjord, uh, which is actually a Norwegian term for a very, very steep canyon that's filled with water. The fjord we were actually in was called uh, Arjulens Fjord. It's a part of the largest one that they have in Norway. And we ended up kind of on the side below the hill, nicely overlooking this beautiful area. And I sat there and just stared at the beauty that it was. I can show you some pictures. It will not do it justice. I can describe it, and I will, because I looked it up, because I was curious. In its deepest spot, the water is 3,156 feet deep. It's really, really deep. What's interesting, though, is the water's at sea level, because the, the, uh, the ocean comes in there a little ways, and it meets the fresh waters. It comes raging down the canyons. But not only is the water really deep, the canyons are very deep as well. In fact, the deepest uh, part from the top of the cliff to the water is 5,900 feet. So if you combine those two things together, from top of land all the way to the bottom of the water, that's 1.7 miles down, deeper than the Grand Canyon. And part of what makes it so spectacular, this isn't the takeaway from the Grand Canyon, but part of what makes it so spectacular is that at its width, the widest it is apart is just over a mile and a half, whereas the Grand Canyon is 16, 20-something miles wide, different parts. And so imagine here this amazing thing that's carved out uh, from the land, incredibly tall, sheer cliff faces down, and then incredibly deep, very cold water. And a few days after that, we got to go and hike across a glacier that is still continuing to do the work of changing that landscape, albeit very slowly. It was just stunningly beautiful. And after coming back from the glacier and after seeing those and sitting one evening, I began to wonder, is it possible that we've seen an increase and those who are atheists, who claim there is no God, is it possible that we've seen an increase in those who worship nature, not just someone who's concerned about the environment, but someone who really places the environment above people? Is it possible that it's because we don't see nature like we used to? Is it possible because we live in boxes and drive around in boxes and sit around when we're not busy and watch things these little tiny boxes that we hold or have hung on our walls. 
Is it because we are not actually in nature? And what does nature itself have to teach us? And this ties in with what I just read because I think those uh, founding fathers who wrote these words and who took a stand and voted to uh, absolve themselves from their form of government and to start a new one understood something fundamentally that we today should understand as well, that nature itself teaches us certain things. That we can look at the beauty of things, whether it's an amazing uh, canyon in another country or whether it's a rolling hill in Tennessee, or even in Rutherford County, the flat land. We can look at the nature that God has given us and learn something from that. And I want to talk about that for just a minute. And I'll be in Romans chapter 1 today, if you want to turn there. Romans chapter 1, we'll read just a few verses. Romans chapter 1, I'll start with verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by all things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. And so I want to spend just a few minutes this morning talking about this and encouraging us to consider creation and what it teaches us about God. Now from this we get a concept that we call uh, general revelation in that God is revealing who he is to everyone in nature. And again, it doesn't have to be an amazing canyon formation in Norway. It can be the deserts in Africa. It could be the jungles in South America. It can be anywhere where God has made something, which is everywhere that we live. And we can stand back and look at these things, both the beauty of them and the complex nature of them. And if we will simply pause and be open, God will tell us something through nature about himself. And he tells us enough that we are without excuse. There's two things that are very clear that we learn from nature. One is there is a God. And two, I'm not God. Those are two basic things that we should be able to see when we look out at the world that he has uh, created for us. It's sometimes a mystery to me, and I think it's because we don't think very deeply, how anyone who studies science or who is a physician and studies the human body can possibly believe that there is no God. For anyone who's had any type of illness or you've studied very closely uh, the body or a part of your body or you've had some type of, of problem or you've studied science and considered how everything works, all you have to do is pause and go, how does all this work? How is it possible that only a few feet in difference in the world would either be too cold for human life or too warm? How is it possible that light, this thing we call light, enters our eyes and is interpreted by our brain as things that we see? How is it possible that through this thing on the front of my face I can smell things? All we have to do is pause and really look at what we are dealing with, and we should, rightfully so, as the scripture says, stand in awe of what God has created and at least know that there is something greater than me. There is a God who made all of these things. 
But all too often in our culture today, we deny those two things. We deny that there's a God, and then in God's place, we say, I am God. And we do this over and over again. We deny there's a God, and then we claim that we are God. Now, most would never claim, like, you know, verbally and say, I am God, but we sure sure act like that a lot, don't we? Think that we have complete control and can do whatever we want to. But if we are honest with ourselves, when we see nature and when we consider what God has made, there is something inside of us that tells us there's something greater than us. There's something bigger. And we know this because we live in a world that has been created, and we know that there is some truth, some reality, something out there that is beyond us. I've heard stories of people in other countries who have no idea the scriptures and yet would stand on the edge of a mountain looking out into the stars and know that there's a God because the infinite stars and the infinite world proclaim him because he made them to do that. So let's look at a few of these verses a little bit closer. Verse 19 says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed unto them. Read that in a different translation. It says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them in their inner consciousness, for God is made evident to them. It says that which is uh, known about God, or the King James says that which may be, but it's probably better translated that which is. Either way, it implies that there is a lot we can't know about God. And I want to pause here for just a minute. This is a really common thing that we see today, or at least an argument that we come across a lot. People will say, well, I just, I don't think God would act this way. Or my God would never do this. Or it just doesn't make sense to me that God would do these things. Well, brothers and sisters, let's be real honest with ourselves. If we could understand God, he would cease to be God. That's the very point. What we try to do, again, without admitting as much, is put ourselves at just almost equal or equal with God and say, well, if I don't understand it, then clearly God doesn't work that way. God is so far and high above anything that I could ever think or imagine that if I ever think the same way God does, it's because I'm blessed or I'm lucky. It's not because God can be understood. There's all kinds of verses that talk about this. But this is a very, very common thing that we see in our society today. Well, how could a loving God do X? That's a good question sometimes. Sometimes I struggle with that. I'll be honest with you. But the answer is, I don't understand God. I barely know God in the sense that I can know him as a fallen but saved human being. Many, many times in my life I have to fall back to the scripture that says, I will know later. I see through a mirror dimly now, and I trust that I will know later. If God is something that could be completely understood, something that we could reason with, something that we can think through, then he would not be God. And by doing those things, we bring God down to our level, which makes him not God at all. So this verse implies that there is much we do not know, because that which may be known... That which is known is only a small part of what possibly could be known about God. And we need to keep that in mind. 
It goes on and it says, because a known of God is manifest in them. I want to talk about that word for just a minute. I looked up a definition, my favorite dictionary. The word manifest means plain or open, clearly visible to the eye or obvious to understanding, apparent, not obscure or difficult to be understood. And then Noah Webster cited this exact verse. What does it mean to have something that is manifest? It means it's obvious. What does it mean when our founding fathers talked about it in this way, saying, look, these things are just apparent. This is just the way things are, and we know this. Brothers and sisters, there are things that the world teaches us that we can simply know and trust. Why? Because God made them that way, and he put a little bit of his spirit inside of us that longs to know and understand and recognize when we see these things. And so the, what we are reading here is that because that which may be known of God is manifest, or you could say that is plain, that is open, it is clearly visible, it is obvious that I am not the point of life. It is obvious that I am not God. It is obvious when you look at all of creation that something created all of these things. It was not created by itself. It did not come from one form to the next. It is obvious, manifest, apparent, not difficult to understand. That might be difficult for some of us to accept it, but that's a different thing. It really is that obvious, that transparent, that open, that clearly visible. You don't have to look out across the world and wonder if God made it. It's evident that there is a creator who made everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that we feel, and everything that we taste. And that's all that we know about. There may be other senses, and I'd say rightfully so, that we don't possess. There are other things about this world that I don't know. Again, going back to we think we're masters of all this. We think we've really discovered everything. The scriptures tells us in Ecclesiastes, we may get there, there's nothing new under the sun. We really think we've learned it all. We haven't even scratched the surface. Because we only know in part what God has revealed to us. That's why it says here, um, that which is made known of God. The little bit that we can understand about God, we can understand through what he has made. Whether we stand on the shore and look out across the ocean, the lakes, and enjoy it, whether we hike through a forest, wander through a field, whether we're on the mountain or in the valley, whatever it is, wherever we're at, whatever we see, whether it's an animal or it's nature that God created, we can look and understand and see God in it. Why? Because he made it for us to see and to experience and to know who he is. And creation shouts to us, there is a God a God of order, a God of love, a God of imagination, a God of beauty, a God for you to worship. Continue on to verse 20. Again, I'll read this in a different translation. It says, For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through his workmanship, all his creation and wonderful things that he has made, 
so that they who fail to believe and to trust in him are without excuse, without defense. So what is this invisible thing that we're talking about? What is it that God has done? His eternal power is clearly visible in nature. And from this, we can see the very attributes of who we are. We cannot physically see God. We cannot see his attributes, the things, the ways that God describes himself, the things that we know are true about him. But through nature, we can help understand them. What are these attributes? Well, I'll take you back to about two years ago. His attributes that we studied, and this isn't a complete list, this is a partial list, he's incomprehensible. Can't understand him. He's self-sufficient. He is self-existent. He's eternal. He is infinite. He is immutable. Omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He is wise, good, faithful, just, merciful, gracious, sovereign, and holy. And we can see these things in the world that he has created. There is enough for us to see, to know. And we can marvel at them. How do we do this? Well, with our human mind, the thing that he gave us, the thing that's different than animals, the ability for us to have this communication with each other and with him, allows us to conceive of the things that we perceive. And I'm going to get another English lesson here. Ready? We perceive things, it's differently than conceiving. To perceive means we become aware of something. I hear something, I touch something, I see something. But to conceive it is our mind's way of understanding what it is. And if you go on through Romans chapter 1, what happens is you see that human nature is to uh, perceive things of this world and then to falsely turn things and conceive them and turn them opposite from what they should be. We begin to worship nature instead of the creator of nature. We begin to worship ourselves rather than the one who made us. But God has given us the ability to perceive, to see the things, to experience the things that he's given us, and then to understand that we ought to worship the one who made them. Now, we must be very careful, as I said, to understand that creation is not what we should worship. It's what teaches us and shows us who we are to worship. Creation tells us that God is eternal, powerful, or a Godhead. Now, read verse 20 again, because I didn't pick this up until I began to study it. It says, For the invisible things of him, that is his attributes, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. We can know who he is, because of creation. You with me? Then it says, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So creation and seeing the things that are of him point back to him. That's why when we stand and see a beautiful vista, when we see creation, when we see something amazing about what, who and what we are, that we think about God and not creation and not ourselves. That's why when we have this word, we talk about wonder or awesome or awestruck. We have words that are hard to even describe with sentences because they describe a feeling. And we misuse those words a lot. We say something's amazing when it really isn't. 
and awesome when it really isn't. But if we really understand what those words mean, we understand the power that's within them because we stand there in awe of God. Maybe you've never had the opportunity to go see the Grand Canyon or to go see an ocean or something, but I dare say that all of us at some point in our lives have had an opportunity to stand in creation and go, wow. Because God designed it to be that way and to point back to him, to point back to the Godhead, as it says here. God is revealing himself through what he has created, including the fact that he is God in the Godhead. It says that it is his workmanship that he created these things. There are many, many passages that I could read. I just want to read a couple real quick that very clearly point this out. Ecclesiastes came to mind, chapter 1. One generation, generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goeth down, and hasten to its place where he rose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about to the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again, except to its circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. And we see from the preacher as he titles himself in this, this idea that creation is proclaiming who God is. But we don't understand it at all. I want to read again Job 38. You can continue reading afterwards if you want to. But I want to read all this chapter because what we are reminded here is that Job is making his complaint to God. And God comes says, are you ready? Because I'm going to talk to you like a man. God doesn't begin to describe his attributes and who he is. God doesn't get angry and say, well, how could you not believe me? No, instead, God turns to the very bedrock foundation of who he is and points out to Job his creation and says, stand before me and let me tell you how things are. Job 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And here God continues his discourse. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the seas within the doors, when it burst out of the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked shall be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld 
and their uplifted arm is broken? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way of the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the great number and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has left a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begun the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost in heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead from the Mazath in the season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule of the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that flood the waters that may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions? When they crouch in their dens or lie in wait of their thickets, who provides the raven its prey? When it is young, one cries to God for help and wander about for lack of food. And God goes on and on and on. Isn't it interesting? When God gets called into question, when we, Job truly wants to know who God is and where he's at, he shows up and does what? Tells him everything about everything he's created. He goes on and talks about the amazing animals that God has created. And in the end, Job understands and says, I'm going to cover my mouth because I have no response. So brothers and sisters, when people want to know about God, let's point them to creation. If creation itself is good enough for God to show who Job who he is, it's good enough for us to point to and say, there is God and his creation and everything in creation, the beauty of it, the way that it works, all of it points to him and all we have to do is be open to that. It's beautiful. And as I said before, one minor change isn't going to change things. I'm sorry, one minor change and things change forever. I'll go ahead and get in trouble one more time because I like to do that. I saw a great little meme the other day. Uh, it said, you can, you can say you're changing your gender all you want to, but in 100 years when someone digs you up and looks at your bones, they're either going to say that's a man or a woman. And the reason is because the bones don't lie. In fact, for those who study this, and I have for a variety of reasons that it take a while to explain, but uh, trust me when I tell you that the hips of a woman are different than a man. They're wider, they're shaped different, because they're made for 
birth. Now, lots of really, 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 really degreed and intelligent people will tell us that there's this thing called evolution, right? That we slowly change over time. So just let me ask this question. If the hips weren't wide enough for the first baby to come out, how would we have evolved? We'd all be dead. When we think about this thing we call science, we think about how intricately our bodies are made, when we really stop and think about the fact that it had to be made that way for there to be this miracle we call birth, <coughs> we begin to see how amazing God is. And I think we need to see more of it. I've held life in my hands as it took its first breath, and I've held it as it's taken its last. I've spent time in nature. And when I am quieted to really consider these things, I see God. And I hope you do too. And so we see all of this, and the reality is this, because creation itself tells us about God, we are all without excuse. Without excuse. This is a very tragic news. Make no bones about that. What this means is that those who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ are without excuse and will be punished for having not sought after him. That's why we go and tell the good news to our neighbors and our friends and across the sea because they need to know. They know enough to know that there's a God or they ought to but they need the scriptures and the spirit of God to reveal who he really is. We have a, a problem. We are without excuse. The most you could get from creation is to know that there is a God and that I'm not him. And we are told to go and tell the good news. Now, if you follow Romans in this first uh, few chapters, which we have looked at the, the uh, remaining after this uh, for quite a while, it's where we talked about the attributes of God from this first chapter. But understand that Paul is setting us up here to understand what happens. He tells us that creation is the beginning of knowledge, helps us to know who God is, and then he goes on and tells us all the really bad news. That we have exchanged the beauty that God has made and worshipped it instead of the Creator that we've begun to worship ourselves and have fallen down and down and down and down. And all we might have to do is to look around at our society today and think, well, yeah, this is all really true. Then comes chapter 3, beginning with verse 20. And we say one of Brother Jim's apparently favorite words. Therefore... Brothers and sisters, we need to read the scriptures more and longer. If you simply rely on the few verses that I share with you, also I read quite a bit today, but if you simply rely on a few verses here or there, you miss how it all goes together. If you simply pick up with Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, you miss the entire point of the preceding three and a half chapters. Because it lays the foundation for what we need to know, that there is a God that he made creation and that we are fallen. But we'll assume for today that you know most of that. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. There's that word again. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be justified, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believe in Jesus Christ. This is the message that everyone has to hear. Creation will make us aware that there is a God and that we are not God. It will show us, the law will teach us that we are sinful and separated from God. And this passage here tells us that Jesus Christ came to earth and sacrificed himself to pay the debt that I cannot repay. This is why I said earlier that many people, environmentalists who come to worship the environment, because it's the same concept as the truthful gospel. There's something wrong, and you're responsible. But you can make it better if you recycle or give so much money to the World Wildlife Foundation or whatever, or if you save a zebra or whatever it is. You can make a difference. But the truth of the matter is, there is something wrong in our society, and that is the fact that God made us, that we fell from his grace, that we are sinful, and the only way that we can overcome it is not by donating enough money to the church. It's not by having church attendance. No, it is through our faith in Jesus Christ, whom died to be the propitiation to pay the debt that I could not pay. That is what nature itself is teaching us and leading us to, and that is what is our responsibility to know and to share with those who are in the world. There is a problem. You are separated from God because God is all that is good and holy, and you are all that is not. And the only way to overcome that, to be at peace with God, is to seek after him. Aren't you glad there's a therefore? Aren't you glad that you live in a time and even in a country that we opened with today where I can stand before you and read you the word of God and tell you the truth that God has revealed to his prophets from old that has been, that has been uh, kept for us that we can see today? Aren't you glad that the spirit of God works among us and leads us and guides us unto all righteousness? Aren't you thankful that we can look over the landscape of the world and no matter who you are or where you're at, you know deep down inside that there is a God and we have the blessed opportunity to share the more specific revelation that is Jesus Christ with the world so that they can also know the therefore that they can receive the gift, that they can be made whole, that they can be reunited with God who loves them, who has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past.
through the forbearance of God. God didn't have to do it this way, but he did because he loves us. God didn't have to put us in such a wonderful world that proclaims who he is, but he did it to give himself honor and he did it to bring us to him. Everything that has been done has been because God wants us to know him and to be known by him. Now, to maybe tie back into what I tried to say at the beginning, maybe this is why as I sat there after experiencing just enormous beauty, and I wondered, for all those people who never leave a city, for all of us who maybe we're not stuck in a city, but we're always in a box. This church is a box. Can't even see outside in this church. For all of us who go home and sit in front of a box that's hanging on a wall and only see our life through them, maybe we need to get out a little bit more. Maybe this is part of the reason we have so many people who are atheists Maybe we have not experienced life and death. That's beautiful. It's absolutely amazing. I do encourage you, as awkward as it might seem, watch a video if you can't see it in real life. Watch a horse be born and stand up. It's amazing. Watch anything like that and marvel at what God has done and look to the truth. This might very well be why we have lost our way as a society because as I walked around Europe and saw the amazing, beautiful buildings that were built in the 1600s, 1700s, early 1900s that were amazingly beautiful, standing next to what we call brutalist architecture from the 60s and the 70s where it's just flat gray cement. Why? Because we've lost the focus of what beauty is because we've removed ourselves from nature, and because we've denied that there's a God, so why make anything beautiful? Brothers and sisters, if we want to see more of this in our life, then we need to see God in nature and use it to strive us to not only know him, but to create beautiful things. We need to seek him, and we need to seek his creation. And ultimately, if you don't know him, you're lost. And you don't understand true beauty. You don't understand the amazing things that God has made. Oh, you can stand and marvel at it. You can be taken by it. You can be awestruck. But if you've never been awestruck by God to the point that you've fallen to your knees and begged for forgiveness and have put your faith in him and received that forgiveness, then you're still separated from God. And that means the God that you're in awe of the one that made all of this beauty that surrounds us is your enemy. And I can tell you from looking at some beautiful things recently, some amazing things, miles deep canyons, beautiful glaciers, I don't want to be God's enemy. And neither do you. Because as I tried to point out, God isn't something that we can understand. I can't logic or reason through, well, I'm a pretty good guy, so God's going to accept me. No. So I pray today that you would seek him and know him. If you need to get out and just sit with nature for a while, then do that. But make sure you look for him. Make sure you consider 
him and who he is. Because nature will show you and teach you, just like our founding fathers knew, there are certain things that are just facts. The fact is, God made everything we see, touch, taste, feel, and hear, and know, and God made you. And God loved you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. That when you repent and seek after him, you can be reunited with him. And that God knows you, as I mentioned a few Sundays ago, knows the number of hairs in your body. That's an intimate, loving God. He's powerful enough to put the stars in their place and to hold back the oceans, but loving enough to know you. Let's have a time, a hymn, an opportunity for you to reflect, hopefully on some beautiful things, to reflect on who God is and how much he loves you and how much he desires to know you. But he made all these things to know you and to be known by you. And let us reflect on those who may generally know about God that we need to specifically go and share the gospel with. So let's have a hint.